Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Well, Iran has been an adversary of the United States since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Uh, the United States made a coup in Iran in 1953. Uh, it sent in the CIA and conspired with right-wing Iranian generals. Uh, and um, this was in response to a popular movement in Iran to nationalize Iranian petroleum. Nowadays, it's very common for countries to have nationalized their petroleum, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, they all have. But uh, at that time, usually it was the international petroleum companies like British Petroleum, uh, BP, uh, in its then incarnation as the Anglo-Iranian oil company, uh, Exxon, uh, which was then SO or, or uh, Standard Oil of New Jersey and California, they, they controlled the international oil markets. So to have Iran nationalize its petroleum was a, a huge threat to these corporations, and the Eisenhower administration responded to that threat uh, by, uh, by overthrowing the Iranian government uh, and bringing back to power the king, the Shah, uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. So the Iranians never really adjusted well to having their government have been installed by the United States. And the Shah was uh, uh, an authoritarian leader and uh, much disliked. So he was overthrown in 1979 by a popular revolution, which took on uh, the themes and rhetoric of uh, Islamic revivalism. Um, and since then, the United States has been at daggers drawn with Iran. In the 1980s, Iraq invaded Iran. The United States sided with Iraq. Uh, something for which the Iranians don't forgive the United States. Uh, then in the 90s, you know, the Clinton administration was an unusually peaceful period in the 1990s in American history. I don't think there was any significant American military action at that time. There was a police action in Kosovo, uh, but uh, on the whole, by and large, the U.S. was out of the game under Clinton. Uh, and the um, the, the Iranians just kind of stagnated, I think, economically in that, in that decade. Then President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, invaded Iraq in 2003. And Iraq had been under Sunni Arab rule, uh, under the Ba'ath party of Saddam Hussein. Uh, and it was a bulwark against Shiite Iran, and two big branches of Islam, Sunni and Shiite. Uh, the Iraqi ruling class had been uh, Sunni, the Iranian government's very heavily Shiite. They had had a war. Now the Bush administration overthrew the government of Iraq. And the majority in Iraq were actually Shiite, they're like Iranians, but they had been repressed. They were a functional minority. And the Bush administration, whether by design or by accident, brought the Shiites of Iraq to power. And the Shiites of Iraq have warm relations and feelings towards Iran on the whole. So Iran gained an ally in the region of Iraq where it had been an enemy under Saddam Hussein and the Sunni elite. And then Syria had long been looking for a local patron. Uh, its ruling elite was also Shiite, but they're a secular government. And Iran gradually adopted Syria 
And then the Hezbollah Shiite group in Lebanon had come to prominence, and Iran adopted them as a patron. And so King Abdullah II of Jordan gave an interview with uh, our alum, Robin Wright, uh, in I think it was 2004, in which he expressed alarm at the rise of, a, of what he saw as a Shiite crescent, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, where, where it, Iran had been contained before and kept out of the Middle East uh, by Saddam Hussein. Now it was flooding in as a direct result of the American invasion uh, of, of Iraq. Um, and, uh, and people in the Bush administration glibly said that everybody wants to go to, to Baghdad, real men want to go to Tehran. Uh, so they managed to be both male chauvinists and imperialists in the same phrase. Uh, and, and I think the, uh, Vice President uh, Dick Cheney uh, really would very much have liked to have a part two of the Iraq invasion and, and invade I Iran and overthrow its government, but it never happened. Barack Obama came to power campaigning against the Iraq war, which turned into a fiasco, and, and saying he would negotiate with Iran uh, without preconditions. And so Obama, the Obama two terms, the eight years that he was in power, saw a relative improvement in the U.S. relationship with Iran, not across the board, but on certain issues. So Obama tried to deal with the threat of an Iranian nuclear program, which was a civilian program, but everybody was afraid one day you'd wake up and the Iranians had decided to take it military. Um, by, by negotiating with them very severe restrictions on their activities. They were limited in the number of centrifuges they could have. They were not allowed to have heavy water reactors, which can be used as breeder reactors for nuclear material. Uh, and uh, they were made to destroy some of their stockpiles. So on the nuclear issue, Obama, I think, felt as though these negotiations were enormously successful and they solved the Iranian nuclear issue for the foreseeable future because Iran agreed to be under long-term uh, UN inspections. As I said, the Trump administration came in convinced that this was a very partial uh, victory, if one at all, uh, that they, they felt that the nuclear deal didn't go far enough. Uh, the Obama administration felt as that this is what you could get for negotiations. If you weren't going to go to war, this is what you could get. Uh, Trump doesn't believe that. He thinks that you put them under really heavy economic sanctions, you can make them retrench. And then they were unhappy about Iran's military presence in Syria, uh, its a sponsorship of the Hezbollah militia in Lebanon, uh, and their wide-ranging activities in Iraq, uh, and so wanted to make Iran a revolution inside one country, to contain it, to roll it back from the Middle East. Uh, and so that's uh, kind of the potted history of, of the relationship between the two countries uh, up till this point. Well, the uh, assassination of uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps commander Qasem Soleimani has caused a world historical crisis. Um, its impact on Iran seems to have been to stiffen uh, the Iranian public's support for their own government. There had been demonstrations against that government in October over fuel price rises. Uh, and um, 
there have been from time to time expressions of discontent with the government. Uh, so this is a moment where hundreds of thousands of people are coming out into the streets and provincial towns and the capital of Tehran uh, showing emotional support for Soleimani who was very much associated with that regime. The Trump administration wants to roll back Iran. And so in 2018, it breached the uh, 2015 JCPOA, the nuclear agreement with Iran that had been signed by the United Nations Security Council, including by the US government. Uh, Trump withdrew from that agreement uh, and slapped uh, what he calls maximum pressure sanctions on Iran. These are the most severe sanctions on any country in peacetime in modern history. It's to the point where the Trump administration has gone to South Korea, to Japan, to India, and uh, threatened them with third-party uh, Treasury Department sanctions if they continue to buy Iranian petroleum. So it's not just a trade embargo uh, of, you know, in, in general, it, it targets uh, the Iranian petroleum exports, which are on the order of 70% of Iran's national income. So the purpose for all this uh, activity has been, first of all, that uh, uh, President Trump does not believe that the 2015 agreement went far enough in mothballing Iran's nuclear enrichment program although it did uh, get rid of about 80% of it and subjected Iran to regular United Nations uh, inspections. But beyond that, uh, the Trump administration feels that the uh, deal did not address Iran's strategic position in the Middle East. So Iran has become an important player in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. Uh, it also has a ballistic missile program. The Trump administration wants Iran to withdraw from all those countries and also to mothball its missile program and to completely get rid of its nuclear enrichment program, which was a civilian enrichment program to produce fuel for its nuclear reactors at Bosher. So the, the assassination of Soleimani is, is, is part of that enormous pressure on Iran to roll it back. Iran hasn't pulled out of the nuclear deal. Uh, the, the nuclear deal has many moving parts. And Iran continues to adhere to parts of the deal, uh, including allowing United Nations inspections, which are very important because uh, actually nuclear research is not the kind of thing that can be hidden. Uh, there are signatures of things like plutonium and the UN inspectors are very good at finding them. And they're long-lasting signatures, so even from months and months ago. So the idea that you could like make some plutonium and then cover it up afterwards is not very likely, assuming you're being inspected, which, which Iran is. Uh, so uh, there were uh, limits on various parts of Iran's nuclear enrichment program, which again is a civilian program, uh, but the fear of uh, the Trump administration is that it could be dual use, that it could be turned to bomb making at some point. Uh, so the, the inspections are ongoing. Uh, Iran has not committed to enriching to a high uh, uh, enriched uranium, uh, HEU, which is 
above 20% uh, enriched, you need about 95% enriched to make a bomb. Uh, so they, they were enriching to 3.5%. They said they're now going to do 5%. So at the edges, they're eating away at some of the limitations that they had accepted. But from their point of view, they accepted those limitations in return for international economic sanctions being lifted. Well, although the United Nations Security Council sanctions were lifted, everybody is so afraid of U.S. Treasury Department sanctions that de facto Iran is under this economic blockade, even though it had adhered to the letter of the agreement for several years. So the Iranians feel, well, why should we give up our enrichment program if we're going to also be punished at the same time instead of being rewarded? So as I said, they're, they're gradually lifting some of the more stringent uh, requirements of the treaty. But there's a provision in the treaty that if all sides don't adhere to their uh, responsibilities, uh, Iran would be allowed uh, to increase some of these activities. So I think we're still in the framework of the JCPOA, uh, but it is obviously very badly fraying on the edges. Well, you never can tell when a foreign policy crisis might emerge, and uh, we, we just uh, saw that with Iraq and Iran. Uh, so it's, it's, again, it's difficult to predict these things. Uh, I think in the presidential election, uh, this issue of, of Iraq and Iran will play a big role now. Uh, it hadn't, I think, so much before. I think among the foreign policy issues, uh, Iraq and Iran on the one hand, uh, and, uh, uh, and Israel-Palestine on the other, uh, at the moment seem likely to me to play a very important role. I, I think the assassination of Soleimani is not accepted by U.S. allies. Uh, it's very clear that France uh, denounced it, and uh, the foreign minister of Germany has spoken out. And uh, although Boris Johnson is very close to Trump in the UK, uh, he's not comfortable either, it's quite clear. So I don't think NATO will be with the United States in, in, in facing the repercussions of this. And I think Europe is afraid that it'll get entangled in it all. War does have laws, uh, international laws, uh, treaty obligations. Um, they're sometimes not honored uh, on the battlefield. And there aren't good mechanisms for punishing violations of those laws. That is to say, if a civilian in a country breaks a law, then they can be arrested by the police and then taken to a court and sentenced to jail. But if a country violates international law, often there's not very much anybody can do about it. There now is an international criminal court uh, and, uh, however, it, it has hobbled in some ways and certainly from dealing with the United States. Uh, so there is an international law that targeting cultural uh, symbols in a country that don't have a military uh, use uh, is illegal. And the United States signed that convention. So yes, if, if Mr. Trump uh, were to bomb mosques uh, or um, bridges or uh, architectural treasures or museums of Iran, as he threatened to do, uh, which, which don't have a military implication, then he'd be breaking international laws and norms and he'd be breaking U.S. law. Um, this is, again, something that came out of World War II and many aspects of international law are reaction against the 
atrocities of the Axis powers in World War II. Uh, so basically, there was an attempt to try to make sure that no Hitler could arise in the future who would um, do the things that Hitler did, uh, uh, killing large numbers of innocent civilians and uh, um, uh, taking over part of Czechoslovakia. Uh, 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 before it was the Czech Republic, it was Czechoslovakia taking over part of it and then you know, making it part of Germany and flooding in their citizens, or in wartime targeting uh, people's emotional and cultural symbols. Um, Iran is an ancient country. I think Americans don't have a firm sense of how ancient it is. We're a young country. Uh, we think an old building is 100 years old. Uh, Iran um, uh, has had civilizations on its soil uh, going back, you know, uh, thousands of years. In fact, the Elamites were mentioned in the Bible are one of the groups that invented much of civilization, writing and, uh, uh, and cities and so forth. Uh, and uh, the Achaemenids, uh, the great ancient Iranian rulers, uh, ruled much of the known world at the time. They, they had Egypt, they had, you know, Greece was a minor province of, of of Achaemenid Persia at the time. Uh, and um, uh, the, the, there are magnificent uh, cultural contributions that Iran has made uh, all through these past several thousand years, uh, some of which still survive and are quite beautiful. As recently as the uh, 1500s and 1600s, uh, Iran made Esfahan uh, one of its major cities, uh, its capital and uh, built uh, enormous mosques, uh, tiled in very beautiful ways with a kind of blue uh, tinge to them. Uh, it built uh, uh, kind of ceremonial bridges. And, and so these are magnificent creations and they're the kind of thing that Mr. Trump uh, threatened to destroy. Uh, they have no military significance. I, don't anticipate that this crisis with Iran is going to go to a conventional military engagement. I think the U.S. political elite doesn't want a draft because the draft was what made it so difficult to pursue the Vietnam War. Uh, the, the generals and the politicians were committed to that war, even though they were losing very badly. I remember 1968. Uh, but um, the, the public discontent was enormous because the United States lost nearly 60,000 uh, soldiers in that war. Again, the benefits of that were not clear. Uh, and so people, large numbers of people were losing friends. If you think a person has like 200 close friends and relatives, multiply out that by 60,000. So that became a, an enormous uh, block of people who were demonstrating in the streets, writing their congressmen. Uh, so the draft uh, made it difficult to pursue these wars and the U.S. geopolitical elite uh, doesn't want that encumbrance. Uh, and so I, I think there's not a, an appetite to go back to that. I think they think it would make it difficult ever to prosecute a war if you had a draft. This generation uh, doesn't remember a time when the United States wasn't at war. And as I said, you, you have to have been alive or conscious in, in the Clinton administration uh, to remember such a time. Uh, and so I think there's th th this constant war, not only war, but also terrorism. 
has produced these anxieties of where things could go. Um, in the world of, uh, of the internet, uh, social media and so forth, you never know exactly who's pushing certain memes. Uh, and so uh, I'd be a little worried about, uh, about uh, influencers from countries that don't want a strong US military uh, to kind of produce these anxieties in the US public. Uh, so I, I'm not alleging that that's necessarily being done, but I think anytime you have a trend uh, on, on the internet, you have to be worried at least a little bit about who exactly is promoting that trend and how spontaneous it really is. And uh, you know, Twitter has had to close hundreds of Saudi sites, for instance, uh, who were attempting to do propaganda of various sorts. You have Cambridge Analytica, which is a whole company uh, which is dedicated to manipulating public opinion in various countries uh, on the internet and which played a role both in the British vote for Brexit and, f and in the, uh, the 2016 presidential campaign. Uh, so th this is not in doubt. These things happened. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I don't know. I haven't uh, seen any, um, any studies of this particular uh, hashtag. Uh, but I, th I think both things are probably true, that there are people who would like to produce this anxiety. There are people who are f ge genuinely feeling the anxiety. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Please subscribe to hear more, give us a rating to let us know what you think, and follow the conversation on social media at hashtag you Impact.